day was the inauguration of Donald J. Trump. And whether you like him or you don't, whether you believe him or you don't, whether he comes through with the expectations or he doesn't, there were some things that happened yesterday at the inauguration um, that were unprecedented in the history of the United States um, ceremonies. Uh, first of all, in the inauguration ceremony yesterday, there was a record number of prayers that were offered, um, and, and each of those prayers was offered in Jesus' name. That's never happened before at an inauguration ceremony. Um, the, the prayers that were offered were exclusively Christian. There was no other faith or other, uh, um, even Judeo-Christian form of um, group represented. They were they were exclusively Christian. Uh, also, um, Mike Pence, the the vice president, when he was sworn in, he had his hand on an open Bible, which is not common. And he intentionally had the Bible open to the passage in Second Chronicles chapter seven, verse fourteen, where it says, "If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and turn from their wicked ways, uh, then I will come and I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land." And he intentionally put his hand on the Bible on that verse when he was sworn into office, making it a prayer. Um, that, that that's the desire and the objective, at least of his heart, uh, in the position that he is serving. Another thing that happened yesterday, which is, is not common, though you can't say maybe it's never been done, is that uh, when, when Donald Trump um, gave his acceptance speech or his inaugurational speech, he quoted scripture um, and, and he, he gave a unique um, credit to God as the defender of our nation. When he talked about the fact that we are defended, that we are watched over, we are protected was his exact word. And he talked about our military, he talked about our law enforcement, and then he said, and our God. He, we're, we're protected by our God. And, and there was many things yesterday during that um, ceremony for us to be hopeful at, at least about uh, in the proceedings and in the ceremony that went on. Now, all of that to say is that no matter how um, news media or historians want to frame the narrative of the country's existence, you cannot deny that we are founded upon uh, the principles of God, the person of God, and the ways of God. If just weaved into the very fabric of the Constitution, uh, of the historical events that took place that shaped the nation as it is, you find the person, the word, and the ways of God. And you can't deny that uh, by any stretch. Our military-industrial complex, every branch of the United States uh, military, regardless of whether it's the air or the sea uh, or the land, um, has its roots and its foundations in a biblical mindset. You know, if you were to go even to West Point Academy or the mil great military academies or even the boot camps uh, in, in the United States of America, even today, and you look at the textbook for how they train soldiers to be fit for battle, 
and to be fit for their, their service in this country. They take their playbook right from the Bible. They study the battles of Joshua and the conquest of the promised land, and they use those things as a, a textbook for the way that they strategize and, uh, and, and, and train their soldiers. But even more than the strategy that they use to draw up a battle plan or to uh, engage in military conflict, the way that they prepare each individual soldier, whether they realize it or not, is taken directly from the Bible. How so? The way that a soldier is prepared is that a young man is taken into the service, or a young woman, and when they're taken in and they begin their basic training or their boot camp experience, the objective of the drill sergeant or of the um, you know the body that, that governs over it is to do two things. Number one is to break down the will, the person, the mind, the past of that cadet, of that person that's come in, and to bring them down to the point where they're broken and nothing, and then to build them back up again with all the equipment that they need to be successful in the calling and in the enlisting that they have chosen or they've taken. And that is exclusively a biblical mindset in the way a man is shaped, the way a person is prepared. And so we see the dealing of God in the life of a man, David. And we see that this is his way of shaping a man. It's his way of taking a life and making it what it, changing it from what it was to what he desires it to be. And it doesn't just apply to the military or to David, but it applies to you and I. It's the way that God works in a life. And just our being here today, just our coming to God and saying, God, I want you to be my Lord. I want your will for my life and the things that you have placed me on this earth for. What we are saying essentially is, God, I'm giving you permission to take my life, to break it down, to make me nothing, and then to build me up again the way you want me to be. And thus in the life of David, what we've seen thus far is we've seen God's call and we've seen God's breaking. He's taken David down to nothing. He's removed from David everything that he was, even the good things. He's taken away his pride. He's taken away his dignity. He's taken away his favor, his natural advantages. He's shown David that his natural talents and abilities amount to absolutely nothing apart from God. He's removed from him his securities, his counselors, his comforts, his family, everything, even his friends. Everything has been stripped away from David and where we last left him off at the end of chapter 21, he's acting like an insane man dribbling upon his beard and scratching at the walls, acting like an animal trying to get away from the king of Gath, Achish. You can't get any lower than where David is at at the end of chapter 21. And as we now cross into chapter 22, we begin to see the process of God now in rebuilding a man who will be a king, who's been broken down, who now will be built up. And so in chapter 21, 22, verse 1, we're told that David therefore departed thence. That is that he left Gath 
where he had escaped with spittle on his beard, and he escaped to the cave of Dulam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And so at this point, uh, word has spread. Um, you recall that David's brothers are soldiers in Saul's army. And so at this point, they're aware that Saul wants David dead. They're aware that David has become an official fugitive. He's a man in hiding. And so they realize that David's... Uh, Mother and father are no longer safe in their home, in their position. They're an easy target for, for, for Saul to come and, and to take and to use as ransom in order to capture David in some way. And so David's brothers take his family and they go to David in the cave of Adullam. And now notice what happens in verse 2. And it says, And every one that was in distress, and every one that was in debt, and every one that was discontented, gathered themselves unto him, and he became a captain over them. And so there were with him about 400 men. So over the course of time, while David is there in the hold, I'm sure it didn't happen all in a day, a number of about 400 men that fell into one of three categories gathered themselves unto David. Those that were in debt, those that were distressed, and those that were discontent. And the implication is that the cause of that debt discontent and distress is because of the king or the kingdom of Saul. Remember when Saul first was given and Samuel warned the people, hey, listen, if you ask for a king, this is what's going to happen. Well, it happened. And so these men discontent now with the thing that they thought would content them. They gather themselves to David and it says that he became a captain over them. And so in the process of them gathering to David, David's gift of leadership and place of leadership begins to manifest itself and David becomes a captain over these men that have gathered themselves to him. Now, in the life of every seed, if I were to take a, a kernel of corn or a grain of wheat or perhaps some other flower or, or herb, tucked inside the DNA of that seed is programmed everything that that plant will become once it's sown into the ground. It doesn't matter where you sow that seed. You could sow it in any country of the world. You could sow it in any climate of the world, providing that you know the, 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 um, the environmental elements are, are there for that seed to germinate. And, and that seed is going to become what is programmed into the DNA of that seed cell. Because that's the way that seed was designed. So it can be planted anywhere. It can even be uprooted from a place and planted somewhere else. It's never going to change from what the DNA of that seed says that that plant is. A wheat seed grows a wheat plant. It yields a wheat berry. That's always going to be the way that it is. And so too it is in the life of a man. We have a spiritual DNA. Peter said that we have been given very precious promises and we're made partakers of the divine nature of God when we're born again in Jesus Christ. We have a divine nature. The spiritual DNA that God designed for us is programmed right into the fabric of who we are. And what that means is that it doesn't matter where we're planted or even if we're transplanted, we're going to be and we're going to become what God designed and programmed for us to be in our spiritual life. 
Now, David is programmed by God in his spiritual DNA to be a leader and a king. That's what he is. It's not a vocation that he's training for. It's not a skill set that he acquires through the circumstances that he's in. It's what God is making him on the inside. It's programmed into his being and what he is. And so it doesn't matter whether or not David is in the cave of Adullam or whether or not later on he'll be in the palace in what will become the capital in Jerusalem. David is a king because God made him a king. David's a leader because God weaved the fabric of leadership into his character and his being. And thus we see, even in a cave, when David is near the very lowest of his lows, what he is on the inside is coming forth in the circumstances of his life. And that to you and I needs to be a confidence and a comfort that what God has made us to be is already in there. And that's going to come through and it's going to come to pass regardless of where we're planted or regardless of what stage we're at in our spiritual development. We might be right now very near the bottom. We might have been broken down and we're at the point where we say, well, there's nothing left. No, 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 there is something left. Because you can't take away the life of God that's been sown into the heart. And therefore, what it is that we've been designed to be is going to come forward. Now, we can't make ourselves more than what we're designed to be. That's where burnout comes in. That's where frustration and strife and confusion come into our lives. But if we just yield and say, God, you've made me a certain way, you've given me certain gifts, and so therefore, God, plant me in the ground and let me grow and yield and bear fruit, and it'll happen. Now, the gift, the calling, the DNA is in David. He's a leader. He's called a king. The character that God desires to bring forth in order that everything that David is on the outside is equal to what's on the inside, that is in the process of being formed right now. That's why David is going through all this time. That's why it's still going to be the better part of a decade before David ever sits upon a throne or wears a crown upon his head. In God's mind, it's already done but the character is being forged. It's being built in. And that's the way that God works within our lives. He already sees what he's made us. But there's a process now of bringing equivalence between what's on the inside of us and what God wants to bring forth on the outside of us. And so David in a cave is becoming a captain because that's what he is. He's a captain. So notice what it goes on to say in verse 3. And so David went thence to Mizpah of Moab. So he leaves the borders of Israel and he goes now to the country of Moab where he has ancestors. Remember that Ruth, his great-great-grandmother, was a Moabitess? And he said to the king of Moab, Let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you until I know what God will do for me. So he's seeking asylum or refugee status for his parents in Moab because he knows they're not safe in Israel at this time. And so he brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with him all the while that David was in the hold. So the hold speaks of two things. Number one, is the hold is uh, David's safe place, the fortresses of the rocks and the caves and the deserts and the, you know, the forests where David is going to hide for all of these years. 
But the hold also is going to come to speak of something very precious and spiritual. Whose hold is he in? He's in the hand of the Lord right now. And so all the while that David is in the hold or in a holding pattern while God does what God is doing, David's parents stay up there in Moab. Now, David's dwelling in the cave of Adullam, which is more or less a safe place. It's a strong hold, and it's a place where Saul doesn't have access to David. You ever play tag when you were a kid? Yeah. And, and, and when you play tag, there's always a safe, right? This tree is safe. And so every, someone, and there's always someone who goes to the tree and just holds the tree and never leaves. They just like, I'm not getting out in this thing. No one's getting me. And so they'll, and then they'll, they'll let their hand off and they'll put it back on, you know. But they never want to move away from the hold. And that's kind of where David is right now. He's in a very safe place where Saul can't get him. And on one hand, that's good because his life is preserved. But in another hand, it's bad because he's in limbo. The process that God is seeking to bring David through is on hold as long as David is in the hold. God needs David to get away from safe. He needs him to get away from the tree so that the fire can affect David the way that it's supposed to. So watch what happens in verse 5. And so the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hold, depart and get thee into the land of Judah. Then David departed and he came into the forest of Hereth. And so God needs David in a different place that David's at for the process to play out. And so God supplies and sends a prophet to speak into David's life and say, David, I know this is comfortable for you and it's a great place and there's a gathering of people and you're serving a purpose, but God's purpose and will for your life right now is that you feel the pressure and pain of Saul's you know, uh, spear tip pointing at you and, and, and chasing you down. Thus saith God, you need to move the safe place. Move from the safe place. You need to move out of the place of safety and let the process of God continue bringing you where you're going to be. As long as you stay in safety, you're not going to experience what God has for your future. You've got to step out from this place and allow the pain of it to affect you so that you can ultimately end up where you're going to be. Now, to David's credit here, he allows God to move in his life and he allows men of God to speak into his life. Now put yourself in David's shoes for a minute. I mean, he's had his whole world turned upside down. And I know that my tendency in this would be like, whoa, whoa, man, back off. <laughs> Do you know what I've been through in the past couple of months? Just let me catch my breath a little bit. If God wants me out of this hold, he knows how to get me out of this hold. I appreciate your concern and care, but, but no, David listens to the word that this man, and he says, God, this is from you. And though it's not conventional wisdom, though it's not comfortable for David, David obliges. He says, I need God's will in my life above my own safety. And so he moves out of the stronghold. Now, as you would expect, verse six, when Saul heard that David was discovered and the men that were with him. Now Saul abode in Gibeah under a tree in Ramah, having his spear in his hand, typical of Saul, symbol of his authority. And his servants were standing around him, protected, idle. This is how we see Saul every time we see Saul. It says that Saul then said to his servants that stood around him, Hear now, you Benjamites. 
Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me and there is none that shows me that my son has made a league or a conspiracy, a confederacy with the son of Jesse and there is none of you that is sorry for me. None of you feel sorry for me. And maybe there was a quiver in its voice and a tear in his eye. Or shows unto me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. And so Saul turns on the spin factor here. And he plays the politician amongst his servants. And we're told here that his servants are all men that are from Benjamin. Now, uh, to, 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 to recall Bible trivia, what tribe is Saul from? Huh? Hunter? Hunter. That's right. Benjamin. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. So Saul has surrounded himself with people from his own tribe. And what he does now is he seeks to motivate them to strengthen his position with future positions in his government and future possessions of the riches of the land. He says, listen, guys, you know that David is from the tribe of Judah. David is hiding in the land of Judah. If David becomes the king, he's going to establish his palace in Judah. And David's servants are no doubt going to be the sons of Judah. <laughs> that's right because and and so he appeals to the flesh of these men and he says now listen who is on my side aren't you guys going to help me here in letting me know what the plans are where david is and let's root him out let's smoke him out of the hole that he's hiding in and once this thing is behind us all of you now will begin to prosper now the amazing thing is that the benjamites don't give david up there's not one of them that stands up here and says, wow, you know, this guy Saul really is for us. This guy Saul really is going to come through on his promises. Not one of them does. Someone does, but it isn't one of them. Notice in verse 9. It says, then answered Doeg, the Edomite, which was set over the servants of Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he, that is Ahimelech, inquired or prayed to the Lord for him and gave him victuals, supplies, food, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. He armed him. And so this man Doeg, who we saw in the last chapter, who was there when David came and, and received the prayer and the bread and the sword, Doeg now steps up and we're told that he's not a son of Benjamin, but rather he's an Edomite. He doesn't even have a right to citizenship in the land of, of Israel. And yet he now stands up as an allegiant to Saul who's been promoted. Remember, in the last chapter, he was over the livestock. That was his position in the last chapter. Now he's over all the servants of Saul. So this man is a man of ambition, a man on the rise, a man who sees power before him if he can stay on Saul's good side. And notice the lows to which he is willing to go in order to secure that for himself. What he does now is not only does he give up David, but he lies concerning Ahimelech and the meeting that he 
witnessed between David and Ahimelech. He lies. Now, Doeg knew that Ahimelech was ignorant of the circumstances. Ahimelech did not know that David was a fugitive. Ahimelech didn't know that David was being pursued by Saul and that he was lying to him. And Doeg knew that. At this point, Doeg knows it. But notice that Doeg doesn't care. He throws Ahimelech not only under the bus, but he lies about Ahimelech in order to make himself look better and appear better in the eyes of Saul. He knows this wasn't intentional. So the king then, verse 11, has Ahimelech arrested. It says, he sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests that were in Nob, and that came all of them to the king. And Saul said, hear now, thou son of Ahitub. And so the trial begins. He's called to stand. And he answered, here I am, my lord. And Saul said unto him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him that he should rise up against me to lie in wait as at this day? And so he brings the charges formally against Ahimelech. These are the things that have been laid to your charge, that you have helped David in these three ways and that you did it out of a motive of conspiracy. And so the charge of conspiracy and um, what's that called when you overthrow coup, not coup, but help me here. What's that word? Rebellion. Uh, Revolution. Revolution. What is it? Not this, that's not the word I'm looking for. Anyway, that, you guys get the idea. It means the same thing, you know. And so the charge is laid against David. And so now the defense, Ahimelech stands up. He doesn't have um, an attorney. And so he says in verse 14, Ahimelech answered the king, and he says in his defense, first of all, concerning the character of David, he says, who is so faithful among all thy servants as David, which is the king's son-in-law, and goeth at thy bidding, and is honorable in your house? He says, in, in my defense, sir, first of all, I'd like to, to bring, bring to the attention of the court here the character of the man who, who were, were, were seeking his life here. First of all, uh, David, he, he's a man who is faithful. He, he is known, his reputation is that he's faithful amongst all the servants of Saul. Everybody who's in this courtroom knows the character of David, that he's not a man that would conspire against the king and seek to overthrow his authority and take his place. Everybody here knows that that's not true. That's my first line of defense. Number one, this man David, he's in your family. He married your daughter. Why would he do this? He, he would be, it would be a kingdom divided against itself, which a kingdom divided against itself doesn't stand. It's illogical for you to lay this charge against him. So not only is it not in his character, it's illogical for him to do it. But then he says, thirdly, he does your bidding and he's honorable or he's a man of good reputation in all of your house. He's reliable. This isn't the, the character of the man that you're saying. So that's my first defense. Then his second line of defense in verse 15, he says, did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Be it far from me, let not the king impute anything unto my father for thy servant, and here's his defense, knew nothing of all this less or more. He says, my official plea to these charges is not guilty. I did not know 
about the contention that existed between you and David. I did not know that he was a man that was on the run. And I did ignorantly what I did in giving. I don't deny that I gave him bread, that I gave him a sword, that I prayed for him. But concerning my involvement in what you're calling a rebellion, I am innocent. I did not do it. Now, logical testimony. The king is not a logical man. Verse 16. And the king said, you shall surely die. And so the judge, the jury, and the executioner stands up. And because he has a a preference towards David that is negative, he hears what he wants to hear between the testimony of Doeg and the testimony of uh, Ahimelech. And he gives sentence concerning him saying, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, not only you, but all your father's house. Not only are you going to die for this thing that you did, but every descendant of yours, every relative, everyone who's linked to you is also going to lose their life because you gave David bread You prayed for him and gave him a sword at his request. And so the king then said unto the footmen that stood around him, these Benjamites, he said, turn and slay the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David and because they knew when he fled and did not show it to me. So just imagine the level of insanity that has gripped the heart of this man Saul. Do you guys see, I hope we can see, That sin doesn't stay stagnant in a life. If we allow a small sin to take root in our heart, it's impossible for us to prune that sin and to keep it the size that we think it should stay. Because as much as it is possible for us to prune the outgrowth, it's not possible for us to prune the downgrowth. And the deeper the roots of a sin in our heart get, the stronger that sin becomes and it will soon exceed our ability to prune it to size and it will grow beyond our ability to control. And once that happens, it takes more than just cutting it off at the stalk. That sin has to be removed from the roots and you and I don't have the power to do that. Saul had a little bit of a control problem early on in his life. He was just a little bit of a narcissist. And he didn't control it. He didn't bring it under the spirit subjection. And now that sin has grown so big that he just heard a reasonable testimony and out of a threat to the existence of his power and crown, he just ordered the death of all of God's priests. Think about that. Kill them all. Kill God's priests. He has in his mind become bigger than God. And even the footmen that are around him realize that this is insane. And notice what it says. It says that the footmen, but the servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priests of the Lord. And the king then said to Doeg, turn thou and fall upon the priests. So the the, the footmen, they look at the king. He says, go ahead, kill the priests. And they just kind of look at him. And they're like, yeah, you're the king, but you're not God, you know? And they say, you know, no, you know, you can do what you got to do, but I ain't doing that, you know? Like, be, be, be it what it is. And so the king, at this point, what should have been in his mind, a little bit of a, you know, defibrillation, you know, shock, you know, eh, maybe I should reconsider what I'm doing. He says, all right, if you won't kill the priest of the Lord, then I'll find someone who will. 
And so he turns to the one who will, Doeg. The king said to Doeg, turn thou and fall upon the priest. And so Doeg, the Edomite, turned and he fell upon the priests and he slew on that day 85 persons that did wear a linen ephod. So 85 bloodied white robes lay on the ground in front of Saul and in front of the servants of Saul, all of them slain by this one man, Doeg, who's ambitious to become something in the administration of Saul. And then it says, not only did he kill them, but verse 19, it says, and not only them, but Nob, the city of the priests, smote he with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and babies, oxen, asses, sheep, with the edge of the sword. So not only does Doeg do in the priests, but he goes into the town, the priestly city of Nob, and he just takes it out completely. He's an Edomite. He's a sworn enemy to the God of Israel, and he has a position in Saul's cabinet, which he then uses to decimate a consecrated place and everyone that's in it. Now, here's the irony of this situation. Remember back in chapter 15, when Samuel, the prophet, came to Saul, and he said, thus saith God, destroy the Amalekites, wipe them out, everyone. Men, women, children, sucklings, asses, donkeys, sheep, oxen, remember? Wipe them out. And what did Saul do? He spared some, remember? He didn't kill the king. He didn't kill some of the choice animals and livestock. And he disobeyed and he was reprimanded for it, rebuked for it. But now when something threatens his kingdom, not only is he willing to slay innocent priests, but he'll wipe out an entire town that belongs to God, including all of the the children and the donkeys and the sheep. And what a mess this man saw is of a man. And so it says in verse 20, it says, And one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped. And he fled after David, and Abiathar showed David that Saul had slain the Lord's priests. And David said unto Abiathar, I knew it. I knew it. The day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house. Remember David's white lie? He went to, remember, he went to Ahimelech and he said, I'm on the king's business. The king sent me, I need some food. I need some sword. I need some, some, some help here. And he lied. And Doeg was there and David said it right in front of Doeg. His discernment missing, lapsing at that time. Now he realizes, I know exactly what happened. And David takes ownership of the fact that these priests are dead, at least in part, because of his lie. He doesn't say, I did it. He didn't say, I'm guilty of it. But he said, I occasioned it. I'm the one that has occasioned the death of all the priests of the Lord because of my white lie masking the truth in, in, in this whole thing. And so he says, verse 23, He says, abide thou with me, fear not, for he that seeks my life seeks thy life, but with me you shall be in safeguard. David here is learning a lesson from God, a very important lesson that that every leader must know. 
and that is that actions have consequences. The things that we do in whatever position of life God has placed us in have consequences that reach beyond our ability to foresee. We can never see what's going to happen three months or three actions down the line based upon the things that we do. We can't see those things. And yet we have the opportunity to occasion great trouble by the things that we do. And so you say, well, what's the lesson then? How do you avoid? How do you keep from having things like this come back to haunt you later on in life that you thought were innocent? Here's the answer. Do things God's way. God's ways are God's ways for a reason. He doesn't tell us there's a narrow path and these are the boundaries that mark what that path is. He doesn't tell us that just because he doesn't want us to do things that, that are outside of that path, the boundaries of it. He tells us do this and don't do that because God alone can foresee the cause and effect of our, our actions way down the line. And so when he says, speak the truth, lie not at all, he knows what he's talking about. We think, oh, little white lie. Big deal. Not reporting this to the IRS. But yeah, they don't find these things. No big deal. God says, listen, be wise. Just do it right. What do they say? Do the right thing, right? <laughs> do the right thing. That's it. And, and that's the defense. You will never, ever regret a decision that you made when you made that decision in respect of God's word and of doing things God's way. You'll never, you'll never regret that decision as hard as it is to make that decision in the here and now. It will never come back to bite you because God will make sure you're insulated and protected. On the contrary, when we walk outside of what God says, you can be sure, the Bible says, your sin will find you out. It will come back to bite you. And David says, I did this. I occasioned this. And God needed David to know that. You're going to be the king one day. And the things that you do are going to have consequences that reach way beyond your existence. And you know what's amazing? It's going to happen. David is going to take a few extra wives than what was sanctioned for kings to take. What's his son going to do? Well, my dad did it. You don't have to say it. We all know it. <laughs> 700 wives. 700 wives. Our consequences reach beyond. Do things God's way. David needed to learn it. He learned it. We're going to go a few verses into chapter 23, not much further. It says, Then David, they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines fight against Keilah, and they rob the threshing floors. Now, this is, this is amazing what begins to happen in David's life at this point. Because, you know, growth happens, spiritual growth happens exponentially. Meaning that when we start to grow, you know, God's done pruning, he's done breaking, and now the building, the rebuilding happens. Once it happens, it starts to happen. You know, God's, the fruit of God's work in our life just starts to come forward. And I want you to just consider what's going on in David right now. He's in the forest of wherever at this point. Who even knows where David's running? And he's hiding. He's got no house. He's got nothing except this band of men that are kind of following him around. And someone brings word to David and they say, Hey, Dave, did you hear about what's going on down in Keilah? This little Israelite village, a little bit south of here. And David goes, No, what's going on in Keilah? 
And they said, well, the Philistines, they moved in there and, and they're raiding, they're taking all the people's stuff and they're, they're beginning to kill some of God's people down there in Keilah, these Philistines that don't belong. Now, my tendency would be like, man, it stinks to be them. <laughs> too, bad, too bad Saul's so preoccupied with uselessness that he doesn't go down and do his job and defend the, the inhabitants of Keilah. David doesn't do any of those things. Do you know what he does? He goes, what did you just say? The enemies of God have moved into an Israelite town? It's not right. That's not right. So notice what he does in verse 2. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, he prays, and he said, Shall I go and smite these Philistines? And the Lord said unto David, Go and smite the Philistines and save Keilah. Now how remarkable is that? That a man who's on the run for his life, who doesn't know where his next meal is going to come from, is still more concerned about fulfilling the will of God for his life than he is about his own safety or his own comfort. He says, there's a cause even if I'm in the wilderness. Listen, men, there's a cause even if I'm in the wilderness. There's a purpose, a place for me to serve the Lord even if I'm not yet in the place where I ultimately will be. And David says, I've got to do what God has put in me to do. God, shall I go and fight against the Philistines? And God says, go. David is seeking the Lord. Saul is only seeking David. So David's men then said unto him, and I love this, they said, behold, we're afraid here in Judah. There's fear in our hearts. How much more then if we come to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Now, what we're going to find out is that Keilah is a defensed city. It has walls and it has a gate. And what these men foresee is that if we go into Keilah, then we've kind of walked into a mouse trap, in a sense, a glue trap. Because all Saul would have to do when he hears that we've come into Keilah is block off the entrance and we've enclosed ourselves in our own prison. And so the men come to David and they say, David, we're not so confident that this is a good idea if we go in there and help these guys. We understand that, you know, you have a heart, but we have a mind. And, and this maybe isn't such a good thing. We're afraid for us to go in there. Now, I love David because look what he does in verse 4. So David inquired of the Lord yet again. He takes the issue back to the Lord in prayer. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. Now, this is amazing what happens here. Because what this does is it does two things. Number one is it shows that David is concerned about the condition of his own men. He doesn't say to these guys, Guys, listen, I already prayed about it. I'm the captain. I'm calling the shots here. I feel like we're supposed to go down to Keilah. I prayed about this. This is God's will. So this is that part of the study where I insert that phrase. Be a man. <laughs> you know, and we're going we're gonna to go down there because I know this is God's will. He doesn't do that. He says, you know what, guys? I understand. That, that makes perfect sense to me that, there's a, that you're apprehensive about this. And you know what? I, I could be wrong. 
I, it's possible for me to not, not hear things right. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back and I'm going to ask God again with this in consideration and see what he says. And he does it. And God says, go. And so then David can go back to his men and he can say, listen, guys, I understand. He goes, but I did take this back to the Lord. And now I'm absolutely certain God said, thus saith God, he's going to bring us in there. He's going to give us success and he's going to get us out of there in safety. This is of the Lord. And what that does is it puts the men at ease because they realize we have a leader who's seeking God, who's not self-willed and just going to do whatever is in his mind, that he's going to do what God tells him to do. And we have a leader who listens to us. And what he's doing right now is he is forging a relationship between himself and the people that he's leading. How about us men? Dads? Husbands, businessmen, how do we lead? Do we lead with the iron fist of, well, I'm responsible for this family. I'm the head of this household. I'm the captain of this ship. Or do we take into consideration the voice, the feelings and fears of those whom we're leading and bring those things to God and let them know that we're in a relationship with him and seeking him in the way that we're desiring to lead? This is the kind of way that David's going to rule. This is the kind of people that God wants us to be. And so David and his men went to Keilah and they fought with the Philistines. Now remember when Saul's men were in battle? They were afraid, remember? Saul's men, we're not going against that Philistine. Remember later when the Philistines raided? They were all hiding in the, in the little crevices and in crannies and in different places. Not David's men. They go forth with confidence. We, God's in this. They knew it. And so they fought with the Philistines and they brought away their cattle and smote them with a great slaughter. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. And it came to pass when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled down to David to Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. Now, we don't really know what an ephod is, except that it's some kind of a priestly garment that was used uh, to inquire of the Lord. And it was told Saul that David was come to Keilah. So Saul finds out, oh, David's in a trap. And Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he is shut in by entering into a town that has gates and bars. He's gone into his own prison. So Saul called all the people together to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. So David takes 400 guys to go and fight against Philistines, Saul takes the whole nation to go fight against David. <laughs> David will be successful with his 400. Saul will not with his whole, his whole army. And we'll find out why at the close of our study in verse 14. And so it says in verse 9 that David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. When it says knew here, it doesn't imply that some secret intel was given to David from one of his men or that someone brought a message or that it was posted on someone's Facebook account. The idea here is that David discerned. The idea here is that David had insight. There's something inside of David and he realizes, you know what? We're vulnerable here. There's something, there's something going on. Saul's going to come. We're, we're, we're in a place here. It says David knew it. And so what David does when he senses this discernment that he's in trouble it says, 
David said unto the Lord in verse 10, the God of Israel, he said, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. And then he says this, will the men of Keilah deliver me up into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then said David, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver you up. Then David and his men, which were about 600 by now, arose and departed out of Keilah and went whithersoever they could go. And it was told Saul that David was escaped from Keilah and he forbear to go forth. So Saul didn't end up going to Keilah once he heard that David had left. Now watch this. Two quick things here and then a word of, of closure in verse 14 and we're done. David here exercises a gift, a grace that every one of us must have as men. It's universal. We all need it. It's a gift of discernment. Jesus said that we are to be as wise as serpents and harmless as what? Doves. As wise as serpents and harmless as doves. To be as wise as a serpent speaks of discretion. It speaks of discernment. When you think of the serpent in the Bible, who do you think of? Satan. The devil, right? And do you know what Satan is? Satan is a great student of human behavior. That's what he does. He just observes, and then he sets traps, and then he enslaves. That's what he does. He observes, sets up, enslaves. That's been his practice from the beginning. Remember when Satan came before God? What did God say? He said, have you considered my servant Job that he's upright and this whole thing? And God said, you know what? He only served you because you blessed him. I know people. If you do good for them, they'll be good to you. But take away their stuff and watch how they are towards you, God. I've seen this for a thousand years. God said, go ahead, take his stuff. So he takes his stuff. Job doesn't curse God. Satan comes back. God says, see, what do you think of Job now? And Satan says, flesh for flesh, all that a man has will he give in exchange for his flesh. Touch his body, he'll curse you to your face. I've been observing men for a thousand years. Their health begins to flee. They'll turn their back on you instantly. I've been watching this as long as there's been grass growing on the earth. And now we're not going to study Job this morning, so you can read it and find out what happens. Job comes through successfully. But all that to say is this. What does it mean to be as wise as a serpent? Is that Satan could anticipate the behavior that was coming. He could foresee what was coming within his life. We call that spiritually discerning. It's understanding what exists in the heart of people and being able to discern what's going on around us. That's an important thing that we need. Jesus said, be as wise as serpents. Don't be naive. Don't be stupid. Don't be rash. Be wise. Understand what's going on. However, in that discretion, in that wisdom, be harmless. So what does David do? He prays, God, this is my intuition right now. I have an intuition that Saul's on his way here right now to slave us in. And I have an intuition, God, that these men of Keilah, though I just delivered them, they're going to hand me over. And God says, yep, and 
Yup. That's right. So David prays about what he thought would happen. God confirms it. And notice what David does. He leaves. He doesn't turn around and say to the men of Keilah, you pieces of garbage. Do you know what I just did for you? I just do you know where you would be if I hadn't come into this city right now? You would be Philistine food because that's what you were had to be. And, and now you're going to turn me over to Saul. You, you know what? You guys can all die and your walls can fall on you. David doesn't do that. He says, you know what? I know people. I know me. I know what I would do if I was a key. light and Saul came. He says, I'm just going to graciously leave. No vengeance. No bitterness. Just going to step aside. Christ-like. Gadara. Some 700 years later. Jesus, in the towns of Galilee, walks into a village. Sees a man on the outskirts who's chained to the rocks. Naked. Gnashing. Foaming. Terrorized a village. No matter how many times they tried to chain this guy, he would break free and come into the village and cause more problems. They could do nothing with him, and finally they find a way to bind him outside the city and hope that he dies. Jesus comes along. In one word, 2,000 demons are cast out of that man, and he is sitting, clothed, in his right mind, talking to Jesus. And the men of the city catch word of it. They come out, and they say to Jesus, They say, what is this? And Jesus explains, and you know what they said to Jesus? They said, Mr. Messiah, could you please leave? What? Do you know what I just did for you? I just, your crime rate is about to go to zero because of what I just did. You don't have to lock your banks or your cars anymore because of what I just did in your village. You're going to ask me to leave? I'll show you leave. I'll leave. You know what Jesus did? He stood up. And he left. Do you know what Jesus does even to this day? He delivers a man. He delivers a woman. He delivers a family. He delivers a village. He delivers a country from calamity, from destruction, from certain problems. That if things had been left on their natural course, that country, that family, that man's life, would be nothing. It would be destitute. It would be left upon the rocks. And that man turns around, or that country turns around, and looks at the God who delivered them and says, thanks, but no thanks. Could you please leave? And you know what God does? He leaves. He doesn't enact vengeance. He doesn't show forth bitterness. He doesn't smite it with earthquakes and lightning. He just withdraws. And you know what happens when God withdraws? David left. This is Christ-like. The nature of Christ is being forged in David. It's working. And we close with verse 14. Sorry for going long, but we're done here. It says, And David abode in the wilderness... In strongholds. When you read the word wilderness in the King James, it's translated desert. Wilderness is desert and forest, uh, no, wilderness is desert and uh, 
forest is no desert. Sorry, wilderness is desert, and desert is forest. It's the opposite in, in in the language in the Hebrew. So when it says wilderness, it's desert. David abode in the desert, and that for some for some this morning, that's the word. David abode in the desert. It was God's will for that season of his life for him to be in a desert. And David didn't leave the plan of God or the will of God because he was in the desert. He stayed there because that's where God had him. And not only was it there, but it was in strongholds. He was in strong hands. And he remained in the mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And notice, and Saul sought him every day, but God delivered him not into his hand. This is one of the many but gods in the Bible. Whenever you see the but gods, there's always something precious on the right side of those words. On the left side, there's a bad thing. On the right side, there's a good thing. But God delivered him not into his hand. Now, what's amazing here is that what the Bible is telling us is that God owned David's destiny, not David. Notice what it doesn't say here. It doesn't say, but David escaped out of his presence. It doesn't say that. If it did, then it would imply that it was up to David's cunning. It's up to David's strategy. It's not. It says, but God delivered him not into his hand. David is God's property. And if it's not God's will for Saul to find David, guess what? Saul's not going to find David, even if he wants the whole country looking for him. We are in good hands, man. We're wise if we stay there. Amen?